0: Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future Podcast. This is John Goodman, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. This week's guest is Brian C. Hales, an Illustrator to the Future winner in 2002, Volume 18, he also recently illustrated Owen Hubbard's story, The Idealist. He is a writer and artist and one of the most chill people I know. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So I guess to begin, I got to say, I'm, we're, we're recording this at your home, and we were here for the Life, the Universe, and Everything, and finding out that I could actually talk to you. And I said, absolutely, I want to be able to do this interview. But driving up to your home, we kept going up higher and higher and higher. And now we're overlooking the entire valley of Salt Lake City below us. It's just absolutely stunning.
1: Yes, we, we are mountain people. We live in the Rocky Mountains. We live in eight feet of snow, at least during the wintertime. We do, we do experience the four seasons. And uh, you know, I appreciate having the, the nice warm summertime. And uh, skiing in the winter, so <laughs> yeah, just getting out of your driveway. I guess you put your skis on. That's right. Yeah, pretty much. We can ski in our backyard. You just have to hike up the mountain. <laughs> That's amazing. Anyway, so on, um, were you illustrator first before
0: you became writer?
1: Yeah, I think I'm primarily known as an artist first, yeah. and then secondary writer. Um, I won the Illustrators of the Future contest back in 2002. And uh, it makes me feel a little old, but uh, yeah, that was kind of uh, getting on the path uh, as far as being a professional artist. But I've always loved storytelling and I love the, uh, the story aspect of art. Um, you know, every good painting, every good illustration in a book, every, you know, amazing piece of concept art in a film tells a story. And so that's kind of what drew me to the genre, I think, just this, this draw to storytelling. Right. So now, when did the the illustration bug first bite you? Yeah, I, I think I knew I wanted to be an illustrator uh, early on in elementary school. I, I have always had a pencil in hand. I've always loved to draw. Uh, I've always loved to paint. And uh, I think as long as I can remember, I've just been sketching dragons and uh, drawing maidens and... Fantastic beasts, and uh, I I don't know what it is about the fantastic, but uh, sci-fi and fantasy are definitely my go-to genres. Although I do dabble in horror and westerns and other things. But what about apples and grapes in a dish? Yeah, that was always painful for me. You know, that was always that was always sort of a necessary evil, I guess, or an unnecessary evil. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, going to, going to, uh, the, all the art classes in school, you know, I, I knew I was going to be an artist and so I guess it helped, but I think I grew the most by just the endless hours of practice at home, uh, studying anatomy books, um, and then also studying in college. I had an amazing art professor, Glenn Edwards, Uh, who was a big painter in the seventies, did some movie posters and uh, a lot of Western scenes. But uh, I think as far as my teachers in middle school and high school, you know, they did okay. I didn't Mm -hmm. learn much, uh, but I learned a lot from my uh, university professor. I got it. So now
0: are you the, the guy that was in school and you had your textbook open, but you also then all the, all the, the borders and, and the margins of the of the books where had your doodles in it or, yeah,
1: you know I've never actually been much of a doodler, uh, but I have always been writing and illustrating stories, and so I would get an assignment from my high school art teacher, uh, to you know paint apples or oranges or whatever. Uh, But I would always approach my teacher after class, and I would say, hey, I'm writing this epic fantasy poem, and I'm illustrating it. Can I just illustrate all of these big scenes? And I described the scenes to him, and use this as the assignment. And most of the time, they said yes, because they just saw the drive that I had, and I was going to write and illustrate these stories regardless. You know, and I figured I might as well get school credit, sure (laughs) at the same time or did you
0: have a dragon eating an apple (laughs) yeah there you go get your apples in there yeah so now on the it was your art is is amazing i'm in your studio right now doing this interview and i'm seeing you know there's the cape crusader there but then i see um this is that greek
1: yeah, these uh these Mediterranean murals uh I'm I'm painting for a vacation home we're building, but uh yeah, Greek, Roman art. I've always loved the classics. I've always been drawn to the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and their style. I've always loved artists like Bouguereau and Lawrence Alma-Tadema, uh Solomon Joseph Solomon. Um I just love, you know, those early classicists of uh fantasy and um, you know, classical art, just amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, going around your home as we were trying to figure out where we we're going to do the uh, video interview, I just see all this art and illustration. There's a lot of are those pencil sketches that I see up there, or are those?
1: Yeah, you know, I've got hundreds, probably thousands of of drawings, original art, just filling notebooks in my closets, on the walls, everywhere because i i've done a lot of graphic novels um which is kind of long form comic books right right, right. and uh those those some of those uh, graphic novels i illustrated like devil's triangle dragon's gate they took years you know i did i spent 6 years illustrating devil's triangle about the bermuda triangle and uh each page you know is highly detailed and uh just yeah hundreds and hundreds of uh, original drawings and so I put a few of those on my wall, but I actually I prefer to hang other artists on my wall, like the old masters, uh, because I still have a thing or two to learn. And it's I think it's always good to uh, surround yourself with those who are better, you know, so you can have something to aspire to. That's amazing. It's
0: interesting. um, Don't lose your illustrations there, your your sketches. Larry Elmore. Similarly, who's one of our judges and just an amazing artist on a few? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. know Larry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, he has all these sketches, and, and someone told him because he was wanting to throw it all away and said, Don't you can that these can go for thousands of dollars? He says, No, <laughs> you're crazy, no way. So, yeah, his friend told him listed on eBay. And he's because I talked to him recently on the phone and he was saying, One of my sketches, I Nine thousand dollars! Wow, yeah, go figure. You know, he was yeah. like totally shocked. He's making more money now just on these sketches that he did. Yeah, thank Obviously. you, Dragon Lance. Yeah.
1: Right? <laughs> yes, and yeah. Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons. Both. Yeah. You
0: know? yep. Um. So now, how was it that, you know? So you said you were from a from a ch- young child. You were just you knew you were going to be an, an artist. Yeah. So and story was was king. So how did it come that you've discovered Illustrated the Future in that story? Because you said you were on mission or going on mission with your church. And so how did that whole thing work?
1: Yeah. So, so I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And uh, back in uh, I served my two-year mission for my church back in 1999 to 2001. Mm-hmm. And uh, I served in Jacksonville, Florida is where I was called to. And so uh, I was on my mission— and uh the life of a missionary is very busy. uh you're basically out the door at nine a m and you come back at nine a m lights out at ten or nine p m nine p m yep, yeah. sorry. and uh you wake up at six, but you're expected to have three hours of study, you know studying the old and New Testament, the book of mormon um and scripture so As far as having time to draw as a missionary, it just didn't exist. I had one hour a day that was mine, and that was the hour of personal study every morning. And so I wrote my parents and I said, send me the Bible on tape and the Book of Mormon on tape. And every morning for personal study, I would just listen to the scriptures and I would draw. And so I think I listened to the Bible and the Book of Mormon. 12 times over, over the year. I almost memorized like half of, of the scriptures by just drawing while I listened. And uh, I a friend told me about the Illustrators of the Future contest while I was on my mission in Florida. And so, during my personal study hours, I was sketching dragons and maidens and monsters. And um, so, I sent those in and and actually won the contest with those drawings. So, uh, it was it was an amazing experience because um, one of my idols at the time, Frank Frazetta, and he's still an idol, uh, but he's since passed away. Yeah. He was one of the judges that year back in 2002. And uh, so he was one of the judges that picked my drawings as as winning illustrations. So, um, yeah, that was kind of the start of it. Just hearing from a friend entering nonchalant. I, you know, I I hadn't I didn't know much about it at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but I've since come to to learn much more, and it's it's an amazing art contest for any aspiring artist. Yeah. So now that week you were here, when you flew, up, you were flown out to
0: to Los Angeles, and you had your your workshop. So any highlights of that time period that you that
1: you recall? Yeah, the great thing about the Illustrators of the Future contest is that it's kind of the Academy Awards for artists and writers, and you don't get that kind of recognition, really, outside of the contest, other than, you know, in professional accomplishments and books and films and things like that. Um, And so going out there for the week long workshop was, uh, was very educational, informational, and it also helped to learn about the industry, and how to be realistic. And, uh, you know, how much do you charge for your art? You know, how do you uh, work with art directors and editors and, Um, How do you basically make a living as an artist? Right. Mm -hmm. Because we all know the cliche, you know, starving artist phrase, like, you know, parents being upset that their kids choose art. So we all get that, you know. Um, But I figure with, you know, seven, eight billion people in the world. No matter what industry you choose, there's going to be a lot of competition, and it's going to be hard to make money. You just have to choose your thing and be really good at it, and just know that you're going to make a good living doing this, you know. And, right. And I think for artists especially, it does take a little bit ex- of extra perseverance and a little more oomph um, than you know most other industries, but it's still possible. Right. So,
0: so that week, the so I know there's a bunch of essays that you had the. Uh normally they give the art book to the illustrators and anything about that, those the L. Ron Hubbard essays on art or illustration that you remember?
1: Yeah, I mean, as far as L. Ron Hubbard's writing about um, the profession of art and the techniques, um, I, I think I remember gleaning most from that, that it, you need to be realistic and then also you need to take what you do seriously. Um, and so I sort of, Innately, in a way, I kind of already knew it, but it was nice to see it on the page. Right, you know that somebody else understood those principles, and and it sort of just solidified that that drive and that desire that uh, you know I already had kind of springing up inside. So. Right, one of the things too that comes up frequently
0: when I talk to artists is, is one of his essays on art. He says art is the quality of communication, and you don't. Communication is is the senior datum there and you you don't sacrifice communication for technique. You got the technique is important, but you just gotta communicate. And if you keep on trying to improve technique where you lose communication, then you're missing the point of, of art.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as communication, I would say that's sort of the selfless side of it. Um, you know, you're you're basically creating art for others to view. Um I always thought uh, when I was younger that art was sort of, um, it was all about the finished product. Mm -hmm. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize that it's actually more about becoming something, you know, becoming an artist and it's the fulfillment I think comes in the becoming and not necessarily um, the product or the doing. And uh, you know, I've, I have a lot of artists, friends that are, um, well, some that are totally freaked out by this AI phenomenon you know, that's swept over the world in social media, they think that, oh, AI is going to replace all artists, we're going to be insignificant, um, we're not going to be needed anymore, people won't hire us. And to a certain extent, I understand that sort of scarcity mindset. Um, I was talking to my wife about it. She's like, you better be careful, you're going to be replaced. Um, but I also have a lot of artist friends that use the AI. I've used it just for ideation, you know, to to get ideas, to look at reference, things like that. And it reminds me, I don't know if any of the listeners would remember back in the 80s and 90s, but if you remember a singer named Paula Abdul,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I remember, I was never a fan But I remember there was this scandal when she was accused of using a computer or a synthesizer to make her voice, her singing voice, sound better. And um, she got a lot of flack for it in the media. And then, you know, fast forward a few years later, every professional singer is using computers and synthesizers to make their voices sound better, right? And so when you look at things like AI art, it's... I think it's a tool, it can be used for good, it can be used for bad, and it's going to be. Um, but I think as an artist, I'm not so worried about it replacing me, I'm I'm more worried about what I'm becoming, how well do I draw, how well do I paint, do I paint better than I painted last year. Um, and so for me, it's more about what I'm becoming, you know, than what, uh, you know, the finished product is at the end of the day. I
0: got it. Yeah, speaking of AI, we changed the rules on the contest to make it very clear and very definitive that AI art is not accepted. And if there's a question about it, then what the judges will ask for are the, um, earlier files. Yeah. To show Thumb- that, thumbnails, comps. Yeah. yeah. And to show that Sketches. you've actually done it. And if, it and if it's, if it is a um, Photoshop that's done to show the layers, mm-hmm. you know, that it really was your creation and not skimming the, the, uh, yeah a i what it does it just goes through and just skims the the internet and just pulls all these different images to do this stuff which right now um I know that that you can't get copyrights right now on material that's been created with a i there was one book that was given to copyright and it was re, and it was um retracted saying no if it's it was a i that you you can't be you can't copyright it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And one thing I found too is it's difficult to to get really high resolution AI art images that actually hold up. You know where the faces or the the fingers or toes aren't mm. all screwed up and mangled. Um, and so AI still has a lot of issues. And if, you know in the years to come, they'll probably work out those kinks. Um, but yeah, it's pretty easy to identify. Uh, A.I. Yeah. created art. I'm, I'm glad the contest is sort of policing that and and standing a sentinel for that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, with music concerned, you know, you got computer-generated music, it's like, I mean, we've had elevated music for a long time. Yeah. You know, it didn't supplant <laughs> creatives. The for, real, yeah, yeah, the real art. You know, so you're going to have that stuff, and it's not going to be a way, but you're always going to have the collector that wants the original painting. You're always going to have someone that wants to see A concert and not just listen to music on the radio you're always going to have that that person that wants to see the real thing and there is a difference you know someone who has no ear they can't tell the difference between quality of music same thing someone who's got a good eye they can see the difference between real art you know versus something that's been artificially generated right you know so and the same thing with with writing too we've we've got that too where um ai generated storytelling is is not accepted and um right now it's still pretty easy to tell the difference yeah that's re- that's way easier to tell the difference between I mean, I'm, I'm shown a story and i was like wow okay but it's
1: yeah this was written by a robot yeah <laughs> ai chat bot yep. yeah so yeah
0: see so that's the thing in that but it's it's going to be you know hopefully we did a preemptive strike on that and it's just going to be that's what it is for illustrators you're going to have to be prepared to show, you know, your, you know, the earlier layers that it really was your creation. Yeah. And if it's a storyteller, our judges are, are, are pretty good at, at telling when a person's writing a story versus the perfect sentence structure, the perfect this, which has absolutely no personality
1: to it. Yeah. Which is what AI is. Right. And I mean, people that are trying to pass AI as original art, it it does come back to that, you know, are you concerned with the accolades um, or, you know, the finished product? Are you concerned with becoming an artist or a writer? Yeah. Um, it's There's no personal fulfillment, you know, in in shortcuts or cutting corners. So, yeah, it really does come back to sort of a human level, right? Mm Mm-hmm where, uh, yeah, I, I have yet to see a robot, um, you know, paint something like Bouguereau. Um, maybe that's coming, you know, down the pipeline, but it's not here yet. And it, it is pretty easy to see the difference between what's, you know, created from a human and what's not. So, yeah, I'm not too worried about it. But
0: Yeah, but for those who are, I think having more discussion about so people can understand what, what the scene is with it and what's the reality, because if you rely upon just what you read from Google and the various threads on chats and stuff like that, you can get all freaked out because that's what social media will try to do. They'll try to freak you out.
1: Sensationalism. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But I think it, it also, um, you have to think about being a human. The great thing about it is, uh, your ability to be creative. And I think it's the creativity and the ideas are also a big part of it. Um, I think if you want to stand out in the art world or even in you know, writing books, um, I think ideas and creativity are sort of what still sets us apart from, you know AI, robots, mm-hmm. whatever. how? Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, if you're an artist, you know you need to know your human anatomy. You need to know composition and texture and balance and all the principles of chiaroscuro and what to do. But then you also need to have good ideas. Um, you need to be creative, and I think you need to live a life where you're experiencing things that give you those kind of creative ideas. Good. Yeah. So now,
0: as an illustrator, and we so were going over um, at the. Uh, at the workshop anything before we finish off on that. So anything else about the workshop
1: week or the workshop or people you that were there that helped you a lot? Yeah, it was a great experience to rub shoulders with other, you know, artists just starting out to, to hang out and have dinner with the other writer winners. And um, with the contest, you also get to illustrate some of the winning stories and uh, it, it's just a great experience. You get professionally paid, for your work, and um, you know, of course, there's the prize money, which is a bonus, um, and just being out in Hollywood and hanging out on Hollywood Boulevard, and you know, just just the whole experience was just very uplifting and motivating, and uh, kind of inspiring for a, a, an artist just starting out, right? Right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now, um, okay, guess So, moving on from then, so what happened to your career? after the after the workshop and the awards event and whatnot. So actually, oh, who, do you remember who presented you your award at, at the awards event?
1: Yeah, so uh, those that presented the winning illustrators was, uh, well, they had a special guest, Sean Aston, and uh, he was presenting to the winning illustrators. I think he had just come off of the Two Towers mm-hmm. and the Return of the King had not been released yet. Um, so we were all just jumping in our seats, right? And uh, everybody was asking him about Lord of the Rings and he's like, "I don't know, I hope it's good. I haven't seen it yet." <laughs> you know, speaking of return of the king. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh so it was cool to hang out with him after at the awards ceremony. Um I think Ron and Val Lindon were also uh yeah. leading the workshop that year and they were great. They they taught they taught us so much as far as uh, the art of illustration. And uh, also Sergei Piorkov, mm-hmm. uh, who I think was a previous winner.
0: He was. Contest. He was a grand prize winner, yeah. Yeah. Right, so When Ukraine separated from Russia and the
1: USSR collapsed. Yep, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So he was excited to be there. We loved hanging out with Sergei. And uh, I think Frank Kelly Fries was also a judge that year. And like I said before, uh, Frank Frazetta. So awesome. Yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, great. So now, so what happened after you um, left Hollywood Went went back to...
1: Salt Lake City, yeah. So I'm from a, a town called Logan. It's north of Salt Lake, and uh, I studied at Utah State University, and I was also uh, I also studied art at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. Uh, my mom taught uh, figure sculpture there, and so I, I took a couple of years from the academy, and then at Utah State uh, studied with Glenn Edwards. And uh, like I said, I've always been into writing and illustrating. So I mean, from the get go, I was writing and illustrating stories children's books, illustrated novels, comics, graphic novels. And uh, since that time, uh, you know, a little over 20 years ago, I've, illust- I've written and it, or illustrated, I think, something like 60 titles. Uh, you'll have to look at my Amazon page, but yeah. it's, o- it's over 60, I know. Um, and then one of those was optioned by New Line Cinema, Continuum. And uh, a few of those are books I did for uh, American Girl you know, the dolls, the girl of the year, McKenna, yeah. the gymnast, and some others. So a lot of stuff, mostly fantasy and sci-fi children's books, um, but fun stuff. I've, yeah. I just finished two new books. Uh, one is a fantasy novel that's illustrated. It's called Defender of Lions. And then uh, a How to Draw the Figure book called Draw It With Me, The Elegant Female Form. And then I'm currently working on two more titles, uh, one is uh, a novelization of the Hotel California, <laughs> the Eagles song. Yeah, yeah. That one's so much fun. I I think I just finished writing chapter twelve yesterday, and that one's also going to be fully illustrated, and uh, and then I'm also developing um, a series of books and uh, short film animations uh, called Trip T R Y P, which is sort of inspired by Calvin and Hobbes. And so uh, it'll be a bunch of little children's books and and animations that go along with that. So exciting projects! I'm just I'm always stoked. You know, whatever it is I'm working on, I'm just always into the next thing. So,
0: which is amazing. Now, when I saw you last year at Salt Lake City Fanex, you had just you had this business that you sold, but that you totally like scored with during the pandemic so yeah what was this project you're doing what was this that you're creating
1: yeah i partnered with a few guys uh that live close to salt lake here and uh, we developed some children's uh craft kits so we were making you know fairy gardens and terrariums and rock tumblers and and stuff like that and uh it, it sort of blew up during COVID. I guess all these kids being stuck at home, you know, the parents were desperate for stuff to entertain their kids, and you know, try to get them off their screens. And so I developed this company. I did all the design and and uh, visual stuff, all the photography and packaging design, and uh, that that company was called Bright Products. And uh, my partners. Um, we actually had a buyer, uh, somebody that wanted to buy the company from us last year and we'd only been developing it for about four years and, uh, we had, I think 11 products and, uh, anyway, yeah, my partners wanted to sell. I wanted to wait a little longer, but, uh, I finally gave in and we sold that company last year. And, uh, so anybody that tells you, you can't make a good living as an artist, you know, don't believe them. You know, you can, you can make you know, six, seven figures if you really put your heart in it, you know, so. You got a big heart. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So you've been, I'm not asked you about this yet. So, cause you keep on talking about your writer as well. So we talked about your art side of your life. Now let's go to the writing side. So when did that start? And if it's the same answer as illustration, that's fine. So when did that start and when did that now start? really blowing up and becoming like a key
1: part of Brian C. Hales. Yeah, let's see. Um, I mean, it wasn't that many years after I came back um, from winning the illustrators of the future contest that uh, I sort of connected with some of the other winners of the contest, you know, like uh, Robert Defendi Mm -hmm. and uh, Bob invited me to their writers group uh, pretty much right off the bat. You know, I, I did some illustration work for him and, And he uh, sort of helped uh, get my writing, you know, past those uncomfortable first levels uh, where you're just not good. I mean, any writer starting out, you got to learn the rules. You got to figure out, you know, what you're actually doing. You got to learn learn the craft. And it's always painful for that first six months or so when you're learning how to actually write. And so I joined uh, Bob's Writers Group. We had a bunch of published authors uh, as part of that group. And that was, like I say, probably 15 years, 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I've been going faithfully uh, to writers groups. You know, that one kind of fizzled out. Two more started up. I sort of have hopped around to two or three different writers groups, but I've been going faithfully to learn the craft of writing ever since. And uh, I mean, I've since written, you know, Blink, the illustrated spy thriller novel uh, like I mentioned, Hotel California, uh, Bob and I collaborated recently on a, a sci-fi novel called Avila, um, which is, I, I can't wait to get that one out. Bane's looking at that one right now. Um, like I said, I mentioned Defender of Lions and, uh, Hotel California. And, uh, yeah, it's just, um, as far as writing and storytelling, I just, I love all aspects of it mm-hmm. and I sort of go through phases I'll go through a drawing phase where all I want to do is draw for four months, but then I kind of get tired of it. And so then I'll paint for four months and then I kind of get tired of painting. And so I'll write for four months and I just kind of cycle around between those three and uh, keeps things fresh and interesting. I don't get tired of what I'm doing, but then it all serves kind of the same pot, right? Where I'm just cranking out all these books (laughs) and uh, other things. So yeah, it's fun.
0: That's great. In that, so now with... I recently I just did an interview with um Rick Rick Bennett, yeah. Rick Bennett, yeah. Yeah, he's in my current writers group. So, yeah. Yeah, he was talking about your Hotel California that you're working on in chapter 12 and yeah. moving along. So now on so writers groups the value of writers groups and again we're talking to aspiring writers and artists right now. Um so how does it, how does it help you being part of a writers group?
1: Yeah, I mean, as as far as learning the craft, it's invaluable to get other opinions because sometimes you think your stuff is amazing, but then you know the the critiques can tear it apart and put it back together, and you realize you've still got some things to learn, things to change. Um, writers group, you know, it's helped me not only overcome all the, the the grammatical and spelling and all that kind of menial stuff, the line edits, um, but it also helps you to learn plotting, you know, character development the story structure, you know, if if you're doing a screenplay, you'll probably want to stick to Save the Cat, you know, (laughs) so because 95% of Hollywood films follow that sort of formula. um, The key is to to follow the formula without making it seem like you're following the formula. Um, Because we're all getting kind of tired of that formula, I think. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, you just you learn all this, all the different aspects of storytelling, you know, what what makes a good story, what makes a a professional story versus the amateur or the uninteresting uninter- ones. Um the thing that um kind of stands out to me is, you know, I can pretty much read a few pages of a story and and know immediately if they've put in their dues. Mm-hmm. Uh just things like passive voice versus active voice. Um, you know, and so you just learn all of the basics, but then you also learn all of the nuances of of writing and Um, just passing that off of each other. And writer's groups, it's not only good for your own personal work, but it also gives you the opportunity to kind of pay it forward because sometimes you'll get people that join your writer's group that are maybe a a few levels down, like they haven't put in their dues yet. And so then you can sort of become the mentors and help others. And so it's not just all about you. It's about lifting and helping everyone around you at the same time. Right. One of the things... For Writers
0: of the Future, it was obviously a contest created by Owen Hubbard in 1983 to help aspiring writers. A lot of what he had done earlier in his career was to write essays that were published in writers' magazines in the 30s and 40s, which are still used in the uh, uh, Writers of the Future workshop. Are there any particular essays
1: that you found of, of value to you as a writer? Yeah, I I appreciated uh, Mr. Hubbard's art essays, you know, back, like I said, when I joined the contest, I was a new and aspiring artist. Uh, as I became more professional, I sort of moved on to the writing side of things. And of course, Hubbard is, I would say, more known for his writing side sure. than for the art side. And uh, one of his articles stood out to me. Um, I, I don't remember if I read it first when I was out in Hollywood or if I read it later, Um, I've since, you know, helped out with the contest as a visiting guest um, lecturer and stuff. Um, But he wrote, he published an article about suspense. And uh, I know David Farland, who was also a judge at at Writers of the Future, um, did a few podcasts and things about suspense that also helped. And I think a lot of those were actually based on Hubbard's uh, original writings. But uh, yeah, just learning um, how to uh, not just give everything away to your reader all at once, but to kind of build that tension slowly throughout the story, um, you know, as the character experiences fail cycles and, and eventually gets there, but you got to build that suspense to right. make them make make it interesting, make the the he reader want turn to the page. continue. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You need those cliffhangers and those uh, act two twists and, and the MacGuffins and all the, all the things, right. To right. Make a good story. So
0: Okay, now have you read any of of uh, Mister Hubbard's stories?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've read a few of uh, Hubbard's stories. I, I actually illustrated one called "The Idealist" uh, a couple of years ago. I uh, what was it? It Was for the? Uh, it was one of the anniversaries, right? Just a few years back, um, called "The Idealist," which was an awesome sci fi actioner uh, that takes. What place about in the that? Spaceship. Yeah. What about that? Did you like? Yeah, I I, I love how he understood. Social dynamics of you know fictional things like the the social dynamics of a space crew in flight, you know um, the the politics you know how different sides actually are have the goals and the, like their goals make sense you know you can understand the the point of view of both sides of an argument. Um, you know, it's something like understanding the the Republicans versus understanding the Democrats. I can see both sides and I can see where they're coming from. And then when they meet in the middle at that final battle, you know, you can understand why both sides are in the battle. And so I, I appreciate his understanding of a lot of those kind of complex concepts Yeah. in uh, a lot of his stories, like Battlefield Earth's kind of same thing. Yeah, so. And
0: you talked about active versus passive voice that's one of the things he really had down is the active voice. And yeah. It, it, I mean, you can't have a really good action story without active voice.
1: Right. And, and there's a, there is a place for the be verbs, you know, the wases and were's and is, but yeah, there, there's a certain place for them. I mean, they shouldn't be littering every page, you know? So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that he was a, a true professional at his craft.
0: Yeah. It was, Um, I, I've come up with, like Hugh Howey, I don't know if you're familiar with him, is, is he wrote um, the most recent thing, A Sand in Across the Stand, which is being made into a, a TV series. Oh, okay. But he's read that book like seven times. And he says that's just, for him, it was like the best science fiction, you know, for him. Brandon Sanderson said he really liked Battle because it's for him learned um, action, you know, how to write right
1: and and a lot of paul i mean a lot of sanderson stuff deals with politics right you can't get around that and that's obviously in in that work as well exactly yeah
0: okay so now with with writing what's your objective you've got you're in one of those rare positions now where you've got the ability to illustrate and to and to write um what's your end game that you've got going on here
1: yeah, I've always been a little bit of a rogue, I think. A little bit of an independent. Uh-huh. And uh, so I've been building my own uh, publishing company, Epic Edge Publishing. And I have published other authors you know, that uh, I've collaborated with or some one-offs that they just you know, approached me and, and uh, their stuff was good enough. And I said, sure, well, I'll publish it through Epic <laughs> Edge. But uh, yeah, mostly, um, for, uh, so I have a problem, actually. And that problem is marketing. You know, I, I do the Amazon keywords and I, I push stuff and I sell, you know, hundreds of, of copies of my books each month. But um, I don't really pay a lot of attention to marketing. And it, it also makes it more difficult if you're a writer and illustrator, if you jump genres, which I do. Yeah. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg for the longest time was only known for his sci-fi stuff, you know, Close Encounters, E.T., Um. It wasn't until he became successful enough that he could say, "Oh, I want to make a movie like Munich or Schindler's List or some of these other things that don't really fit into that box of a genre that we all kind of knew him for." Right. And uh, I've I've had the same problem. I I I love fantasy and I love sci-fi, but I also love horror, and I just I love good storytelling no matter what genre it's in. You know, I've written spy thrillers and um and so and children's books, which is totally different than all of that, right? right. And so, yeah, it's difficult for me to market myself because people don't know what to expect because I'm always experimenting in different genres. And so I would say if if building a huge worldwide audience is kind of what you want to go for, then, you know, be a Dean Koontz, be a Stephen King, let people know what to expect from you. If you can limit yourself to one or two genres, um, I know David Farland had the same problem right he He just couldn 't keep himself locked in one genre and i I deal with that but uh, i do I do a little marketing, but as soon as I finish a project that 's off my table, and all I care about is the next project around the bend so when when you ask me you know what 's my end game, my end game is to make the awesome next product, <laughs> which is probably, from a marketing standpoint, ludicrous. But that's kind of how I operate. I don't know not don't know really how to get around that. <laughs> I mean,
0: Euron Hubbard used 15 different pen names when he wrote his fiction back in the 30s and 40s. Right. Yeah, that's right. But that was because there were only so many, even though there's a lot of magazines, there were only a few handfuls were the actually the top magazines of the day. And so there weren't enough publications for him to write for. So some, frequently, you'll see in top-notch Five Novels Monthly, two or three stories by Hubbard under different pen names in there. That's right. Yeah. You know. So, so because he wrote all the he wrote Western, mystery, adventure, science fiction, right. fantasy, romance, and then in an the adventure he did um, military fiction. He did air fiction, uh, sea stories. So he had all these different things that he did. So he was able to overcome that. And he was one of the most um, successful writers of the golden age.
1: Yeah. So, so, So you're saying using a pen name is where I went wrong. I haven't been using pen names. The thing that Hubbard had going for him was that he was so prolific that he could make that actually work. I don't think I've written enough. In each genre to actually make that work <laughs> yeah, well he was
0: writing during his his heyday during the time period he was pumping out a hundred thousand words a month, yeah, three hours a day, three days a week yeah. that that was his thing and when he wrote Battlefield Earth," that was written in eight months, that was four hundred twenty five thousand words. then he went on the next year in another eight month time period, he wrote the 1.2 million mission Earth
1: yeah, that's incredible yeah, he had
0: two manual typewriters that he used and he'd type one until it needed to be repaired. Then he switched to the other one and then till that needed be repaired, then back to the other one. He just kept on cycling through them. Yeah. You know, he was just, he was very prolific, but. Yeah.
1: Um, and then also it didn't take him a day or two to write a children's book and then six months to illustrate it. Right? <laughs> That's a fact. That's a fact. Right. You know, but um, one thing he
0: did was, quality you know he was he yeah. told he was a story story like you for yourself Story is boss you know and one thing about what he did was he told a story and people loved his stories because they're real those about real people and even robert a heinlein said i learned something new about your storytelling i've thought there's only certain short few number storylines i learned it from you it's it's the man that learned better yeah and so and his stuff they always have some redeeming value in the end of it, which is, I know, I mean, just knowing you haven't read your your materials, which is an anomaly, but I just, I <laughs> had to talk to you since I was going to be here. Yeah. Normally I'll read the book before I, I talk to an art, to a writer. Right. I am familiar with, with your art, um, but it's, there is that redeeming value and, and that sense of morality, somehow or another that comes through, so I'm certain that that's, you know, looking at your art and just knowing you that that's also a key part of what you like to to imbue
1: yeah and i think there's always something to be said for the good guy right we're we're i mean television film books uh, we're saturated i think right now with anti-heroes yeah that's kind of been over the last decade or two kind of um the cool kid on the block was the anti-hero. Um, you know, from Breaking Bad to Better Call Saul and all this stuff, right? These kind of bad guys that we we sort of sympathize with and we follow on this hero's journey. And um, for me, I've always been a little traditional. You know, I'm still a Christian. I still believe in the Bible. And and I have all those those family values. You know, I have four boys and a, a beautiful wife. And I appreciate the true hero. And I, I've sort of missed that a little bit um from, from Netflix, from Amazon, from Disney Plus, from Hulu, from all the, you know, this 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 constant barrage of entertainment that sort of teaches the opposite of these values, right? That's right. And how to how to become something better and how to aspire to to something greater. So I kind of miss the the traditional, the classic stories of of the good guy, right? Mm-hmm. And so even when I'm telling a story like Hotel California. I mean, he's he's not a good he's a little bit of an anti-hero as well, just because I mean, listen to the song. Yeah. Right. But it, it does teach those values and it's a and it becomes a cautionary tale, right? It doesn't glorify the debauchery that happens at the Hotel California, but but you see it for what it is, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you see the consequences of those choices. And um and so I think storytelling, it does give anyone, no matter what your view of the world, it gives you a platform. Uh, to kind of either teach those morals, or teach what you're about, or teach about your background, um, and I, I, I think Hubbard definitely did that with his stories. You know, he he traveled the world, like you said, mm-hmm. he was a pilot and an explorer, and he learned about all these different cultures. But I think, you know, in the fa- with the foundation of it, we're all human, and we all have a human experience. Right? They're all very different from one another, but but they are all human. And so we at least on that level, we can relate to all stories because, you know, we're all we all came from the same place. So um I appreciate that about Hubbard's stories and I appreciate that challenge in my own stories is telling something that's not only interesting and entertaining, but it's also it also teaches something deeper about, you know, the human experience, and whether it's a horror, or a fantasy or sci fi. Um, these are all human characters, even if they're unhuman or inhuman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's
0: interesting because, again, referring back to Battlefield Earth, I mean, it's almost 5 million copies of that book sold. It is very popular, it's very much a hero's journey. And he's not an anti hero. He is an actual Johnny Goodboy Tyler, yeah. is is a hero. And in an interview that that Mr. Hubbard did, Following writing the book and upon its release with the Rocky Mountain News, he made it very clear that without giving it away, it's like it's the human spirit that will ultimately survive. And he said, even when you have these these aliens that were like conquering the, the galaxies, the cyclos, they they didn't have that that spiritual essence about them, and he said ultimately, it's that it's that human spirit that. That essence that's going to survive, in, and in, in the future, it's going to enable us to survive whatever adversity comes up. I and mean, even with right now, what we have going on in society, you're going to see that I think somehow or another the people like yourself and others like yourself. And that's why the, the contests are so important. And Rise of Future maintains PG 13. Mm-hmm. You know, we do that so that's and gives that, that opportunity for the aspiring writer and artist. To get the voice out there and give that that little beacon of hope that, you know, whatever angle they they approach it with, yeah. that things can actually, you know, make it. Now I'm just curious, were there any points in your career, or are there any points where you were like, oh man, like I said with Brandon, he was looking at becoming a plumber at one point because he just until he won his honorable mention where you're ready to throw in the towel and just okay. I'm gonna just get a nine to five and just at least I know I can have something.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Along the way, there there were times you know I thought, man, maybe I really can't do this because I want to I want to be comfortable. You know, I want to provide for my family. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to just get by. Right you know, I'm going to let you in on a little secret, getting by sucks. (laughs) (laughs) You want to do better than get by. Right. And so if you're an artist, like that can be challenging because you're, you're sort of, you know, at the mercy of somebody to hire you, somebody to give you commission work. You're, you know, at the mercy of an art director, you're competing with all these other amazing artists. So how do you actually make a living? And, um, in uh, shortly after I won the contest, I actually did an internship in New York City at the Society of Illustrators, and they always had, you know, I, I would help set up and take down the gallery shows, and they would have visiting filmmakers and art directors and editors always coming in and out of the the uh, society. And on the fourth floor, they had those, this big restaurant with a bar, and they had a five million dollar Norman Rockwell hanging over the piano. And uh, we would do drawing parties and have you know, jazz bands come or, or figure drawing classes. And, and it was awesome. But I remember one show, uh, I think there was a visiting artist named Gary Kelly, who did the big murals in the Barnes & Noble uh, bookstores. And uh, one thing he said, to the, it was a group of illustrators that came from a university uh, for the, for the uh, presentation. And he said, how many illustrators in the room? you know, and most of the kids raised their hands, including myself. I was standing in the back. I sort of served drinks or helped out wherever I could. Um, but I was there same as these students, right? Just to glean from all these professionals. And he said, how many, how many want to make a good living? You know, and everybody raised their hands and okay. Um, then learn graphic design. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, Oh, he he knows we're all illustrators. He knows we're all majoring in that in our, you know, college careers. Um, But he's telling us to learn graphic design. And so I took that to heart and I did learn graphic design. And I love graphic design. Um, You know, but when you're designing business cards and brochures or real estate websites or whatever, um, that skill is informing your illustration and your illustration is informing the graphic design. And the truth is, Graphic design is a very safe and stable occupation. Because if you think about it, every company under the sun needs a good graphic designer. And so um, I learned graphic design. That's one of the things that helped me with bright products, you know, make my first million, whatever. Um, if I if I hadn't tooken, taken that to heart from an illustrator, a working professional illustrator mm-hmm. that told us to learn graphic design. Um, but what's cool. You know, even though I worked for Coldwell Banker Commercial doing design, I always had books that I was writing and illustrating at the same time. And I was also getting illustration commissions at the same time. And I've learned to be so fast with the graphic design because that's easy. You know, throwing together a logo or a brochure, it takes, it literally takes me minutes Wow. To to do. And I can make hundreds of dollars in those few minutes. And then that leaves me a good seven hours of the day that's just wide open for me to draw, to paint, to write, and to develop these other intellectual properties that are my personal passion. And so, you know, learning the graphic design has sort of made me free in a way to do whatever that I want. (laughs) So I feel really lucky that I kind of had that mentor just say that it was like a sentence, right? And it sort of changed my life because I've always been comfortable. I've always provided well for my family. And then I've also been able to write and illustrate whatever I want. So um, I would say if you're a serious artist and you want to, you know, paint book covers, um, learn graphic design because, I mean, even the the elements of design apply to doing a digital painting for a fantasy cover because you have to know, you know, how much space is the masthead going to take up? You know, what what are the dimensions of the spine? You know, how much verbiage are we going to have to deal with here? Uh, Is it too busy? You know, do I need to eliminate some characters? Do I need to add some characters? What's going on with the story? Um, you know, the elements of design apply to all that stuff. Right? Whether you're designing a real estate brochure or whether you're, you know, illustrating a fantasy book cover, um you got to know all those principles. And uh, that that kind of goes back to learning the fundamentals and doing your, you know, putting in your dues, um, you know, doing your due diligence. So, um I would highly suggest if you're a serious artist and you want to make a living as an artist, learn design because it it informs, you know, as well. So,
0: Wow. That's That's really good. And now, in terms of as a writer and an artist, so there is a niche, a niche of, of people that are trying to do both of those. What's been the biggest <laughs> yeah, and you gotta be a little crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So what's been the the biggest
1: barrier on that for you? Oh, yeah, I would say being taken seriously as a writer is difficult. Uh, it's one of the reasons I only learned a few years ago that uh, if you've won the Illustrators of the Future contest, you can also enter the Writers' Contest. And uh, I didn't know that until a few years back when somebody actually did that, right? And right. Now, now you've had two or three do that. And uh, and so I started, uh, yeah, I started entering the Writers' Contest with some of the short stories that I would read with my writers' group. And uh, I think I've won like six honorable mentions and one silver honorable mention, uh, in the last few years. And, uh, some of the other guys in my writers group, we published all of our winning, uh, short stories in an anthology. It's called cresting the sun. And, uh, and so I learned, um, you know, it it does take a little bit to break out of that. You know, when you're branded an artist, it's hard to get people to see you as a writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, I imagine that it goes both Both ways. ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably been one of the biggest challenges is being taken seriously as a writer. And in today's world, it's never been easier to be published and it's never been harder to be read. And so if people don't take you seriously as a writer, if they think you're just an artist, then it's been difficult to get people to pick up and actually read my books. And so that's that's been a challenge and I'm I'm still working through that but eventually I think if enough people actually pick them up and and give them a chance um despite my lack of marketing savvy <laughs> so like what would be a book that somebody should learn to to discover you on yeah I would love right. it if more people picked up Defender of Lions it's got five star reviews on Amazon And not very many people have picked that one up. I spent six years writing and illustrating that one because it's because of its complexity and also just the sheer number of illustrations in that book. I basically developed three alien races from scratch and they're my own. And um, so I would say, I would say Defender of Lions. Defender of Lions. Yeah. Um, And that one is for fantasy lovers. Uh, I would say if you're into Bond, Jason Bourne, The Dark Knight, you know, Pick Up Blink. That's a pretty popular one. And that one's, I've also got an audio book out on that one. Um, if you're into sci-fi or horror, you know, maybe Devil's Triangle, definitely check out Hotel California. That one will be out in a few months. And uh, and if you're just learning how to draw, then I've got a bunch of uh, figure drawing books that are actually number one bestsellers on Amazon. So uh, they 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 just Brian C Hales on Amazon. And yeah, just... just go to just go to Amazon and type in Brian Hales, and uh, all those books will pop up for you. It's H uh, A I L E S.
0: Right. So it's interesting because one of our illustrators that featured judges Lazarus Chernick, He's, I mean, he went to art school. He wanted to be a writer as a as a young but where's the money? He was he, his parents were always challenging and work. how do you make money how do you make money so he, yeah. he went to art school became an art director and that's what he's done and he became then an illustrator the future judge but then a couple years ago he really said i i gotta re, readdress my goal to become a writer so he started entering every quarter he used he, he used a different lazarus black yeah so it wasn't lazarus nice. Trinic, And he started uh-huh. entering every quarter and the first time he got an Earl mention, he was like, oh, over the moon. Yeah. And then moved hey, up. Hey, that so, means you're in the top 5%, right? <laughs> and then Silver Honorable Mention. And yeah. then, um, then he became a finalist. And when he was called a finalist, he was just, he was so super emotional because that was, that was one of his lifetime goals that got so heavily invalidated and suppressed. Yeah. And like, he wanted that so bad. Yeah. And then he became a finalist. He was like mega emotional. And then he got a call saying he was a winner. And he just like, oh my gosh, this was last year. Yeah, over the moon. Over yeah. the moon. And so he came and I'm not teaching the workshop. He's a judge. Uh-huh. But he, he attended the writer workshop. And yeah. he's like, I'm a writer. I'm, a, you know, I'm, so I'm he, officially he, a writer, yeah. So he had his writer badge on. And the yeah. whole thing is just like, no, I'm not i'm I'm hanging with the writers yeah, i'm, I'm not here for the art side this yeah time. i'm hanging with yeah. the artists i'm hanging with the writers yeah but he's like you know he's bridging it over now now he's coming up with his, his more and more books and stories obviously because of his his knowledge as an artist yeah and experience as an artist it helps him a lot for what he's trying to do there i don't really don't see it's going to be a problem like this podcast we're reaching two million people right now with with this with this episode and I think people to be able to, to discover you and find out that you're a hybrid, yeah. You know, being able to illustrate your own work, do your own cover art, and have that—it just—it adds so much texture and another dimension to the story itself. I think people have no idea what they're missing if they don't check you out and check out this
1: type of of story. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And, and it all relates, right? It's, I mean, it's even like design versus illustration. It all relates, you know, storytelling is storytelling, whether it's visual or, um, you know, through prose, it, it's, um, it's all important as far as I'm concerned.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, it's something that people definitely need to take advantage of what you're listening to on this podcast and check out Brian C. Hales and these stories and just find out what it's like to appreciate a story. Some people really like audiobooks, you know, because you get that dimension of the story plus the audio. But now, if you like reading a book, getting that illustration, that uh, you're getting the artist concept of what he's saying there, too, which is something you don't otherwise get. When you get an audiobook, you're listening to a story, but you're listening to how someone else interprets that character. Right now, you're getting like, this is... What you're envisioning that character is when you write it, or that scene is, or the environment, or that world, or 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 yeah, you know, seeing what that is, and it's it's something that like this is this is the full vision of what you had.
1: And I should mention on two of my illustrated novels, on Blink as well as Defender of Lions, mm-hmm. even on the Audible audiobooks, um, I actually have uploaded the PDFs with all of the interior illustrations. And so you can still see all of the character designs. You can still see all of the full page splashes. Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah. That's cool. Well, this has been amazing. We've gone through our hour, which I knew we'd go through really fast. And (laughs) just, uh, um, I'm so happy I had this opportunity and you were able to open up your your home for me to come in here and and do this interview. Yeah.
1: Thanks so much. It's always great to have you guys. It's always a pleasure. So enter the contests and head out to Hollywood.
0: (laughs) Okay, good.
1: (laughs) And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers
0: of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwyn Hubbard to provide a means for this writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much,
1: Brian. Thank you, John.